Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Part four of a series that I personally am really enjoying. Of course, you could ask, Eric, are there any series that you give that you don't enjoy? That's a good question. But I, I really do feel like the significance of this is very personal for me, and I, I'm hoping that it is also feeling very personal for you, that as we progress in this, you're beginning to sense God speaking the language of your soul and beginning to unpack some things and beginning to change maybe your taste buds, as we talked in episode two. Uh, when we stare at some of the grand missionary stories of history, we just think, I'm glad they were called to that. I mean, just look at Paul in the book of Acts. I'm glad Paul was called to that. Whew, I'm glad I'm not. Instead of recognizing Paul was privileged, it was an honor to be Paul the apostle. It wasn't a penalty. But when you look at his life, it's rather intimidating. And I'm not going to uh, lie about it and say, oh, sounds fun. Actually, to the natural man, it's terrifying just like a spoonful of kasu marzu, or what's that rotten shark called, hakarl. It's like, no, thank you. I'll pass on that. And so we're looking for someone else to take up that calling. And yet God is looking to and fro throughout this earth for those that have a heart that is malleable and ready to be transformed unto his way of thinking feeling, and living. And so for us, it's not to examine the calling of God from a natural man perspective, because we're all going to conclude the same. No, thank you. Please have me excused. And as C.T. Studd says, what glorious humbugs we are. We want the work to be done. We want Jesus to receive his due. We want him to come back in power and authority. We want every knee to bow. We would just prefer someone else to go out and get the job done. And we can just cheer them on, or maybe we could give them $100 every now and then and say, here you go. Will this help? It's sort of like the be warm and well-fed. <laughs> However, there is a job to do, and God is looking throughout this room, and he's saying, I would really like to use you. And you know that is the highest privilege that the God of the universe would come to us and invite us into his plan, invite us into the unfolding of his purpose in this earth. I cannot think of a higher honor and yet a scarier one to follow the living God in the direction that he is going in this world. We get the idea that it could mean challenge, difficulty, pain, imprisonment, death. Painful death. <laughs> you see, this is the history, the heritage that we are being grafted into. And it's funny because we know that at one dimension of who we are, but we feel like we can be excused because we are in North America. And yet I would say the greatest thing we could do is allow God to change our heart to actually have a robust joy and anticipation for the calling we've received and desire God to amplify it. So that's what this message sort of brings out. It draws out this idea, which of course I was sort of stirring up in the last message, and I think this whole series probably is going to put its finger on it and stir it uh, at every turn, because it's that part of us that needs to awaken to the honor of following Jesus. It's the part of us that needs to awaken to what the historic church seems to have had, 
because they want to be sent. Oh, God, send me. It's like, whoa, 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 what do they have that we don't? You know that the early church had a problem? Strange problem. They wanted to die martyrs, martyrs' deaths. Why? Because the martyr's death was the highest honor. And they saw that. And they wanted to, if they were going to live their life, they actually wanted to live it so fully for Jesus that they would die for Jesus. And they all valued that as the highest thing. And so as a result, they had a problem in the early church because men and women were sort of prodding along their death. In other words, like coming up to a Roman soldier, poking him and saying, hi, I'm a radical Christian. I'm dangerous. And then acting like they're running away. It's like, oh, you don't want to catch me. And so the elders of the church had to issue an edict to say, God loves the death of his saints, but he also loves it when they live their life for him. And so don't ever initiate your death. Let God deal with that. It's a privilege, though. And so the early church understood that, that this was a privilege to lay down your life, to suffer for Jesus. Oh, for the honor to suffer for Jesus. What an odd mentality that is. Yep, and it's missing in our day. What if we were to get that back? It changes the game right there. If we got that back, suddenly we begin smiling instead of groaning and complaining when things in this world start to go south. We have been chosen for this hour. It's an odd hour, I have to admit. The things happening in the world are weird, and they've never happened in the world before, where we have this unification of nations all around things that we really don't agree with, right? They are rallying together, and they seem opposed. Opposed to what? To Christ. And here we are sort of caught in this generation with decisions to make. Are we going to go and hide, or are we going to stand boldly? Are we going to let our light shine on a hill? You see, if we do that, bad things could happen. Or are they bad things? Who defines those as bad things? If, for instance, imprisonment. you know that most great Christians that you know and love throughout the ages spent time in prison? In other words, is that as bad as you think? You know that in the, in the Chinese underground church that they believe that if they're thrown into prison, that becomes their mission field? And it really is a problem to the communists. You throw a Chinese pastor in prison, and now suddenly Christians are sprouting up all over the place in the prisons. <laughs> in other words, wherever you are, that becomes your mission. And when you think that way, and you have a big smile on your face when you get thrown into prison, because like, thank you for the amazing mission field you have now sent me to, oh, communist government then it actually turns all the difficulty on its head and makes it a delight. So let's dive into this. This is called fretting like a lion. The fretting lion. Now, the, a fretting lion, that's a term, okay? It's not a term that maybe we use as commonly nowadays, but I'd like to introduce you to it so we can use it nowadays. What it means is eager for the challenge. So listen to this quote from C.T. Studd, one of my heroes. In a time of peace and ease, true soldiers are like captive lions, pacing back and forth and fretting in their cages. These genuine soldiers are built for fight, and it is war that gives these soldiers their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or die in the attempt. Chocolate soldiers are an altogether different sort. So this comes from uh, one of C.T. Studd's books, Chocolate Soldiers. And a chocolate soldier, I know a chocolate soldier sounds like a really good thing. You know, it's like, oh boy, if I was going to be a, a soldier, I'd want to be a chocolate one. And yet in this book, chocolate soldiers are not a compliment because whenever the heat is turned up, what do they do? They melt. And see, true soldiers is what he's contrasting those with. And true soldiers are like lions in cages. They're pacing back and forth saying, God, when will this door open? Because I am ready to spring forth. I am eager for the challenge. Come on, God, open the door. Let me go. Let me go to the hardest places. You see, a lion is built for the task. And yet a chocolate soldier, what does he say? Are an all, of an altogether different sort. 
What do chocolate soldiers do? According to C.T. Studd, here he goes. He says, they fear the fray and avoid it at all costs. They are artisans of excuses, conning themselves into feeling noble for their efforts to spare themselves any discomforts of manliness. Real battle is the heroic soldier's vital breath. Seasons of ease turn true soldiers into stooping asthmatics. They waste away if their vigor goes unspent. It is war that makes this heroic sort of soldier a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and verve of a hero. Chocolate soldiers plant signposts along their path, reminding themselves often of their mother's wisdom to avoid hardship, disease, danger, and death. And therefore, these candied dandies consider it prudence to never pass through the land of difficulty. So, this was actually stated just a couple weeks ago to me, and this wasn't the guy. So I do have a picture of a guy that isn't really the guy, but he's a picture of a soldier that looks retired, okay? It's an old, it's an old, old picture. And this, this is what this guy said to me, and he was genuine. He wasn't trying to make his way into one of my messages, and this is what he said. He was so stirred by the Afghan crisis, and he's, he's a retired military guy. He really wanted in on the action. He wanted to do something. So this is what he said to me. I felt tempted to go and talk to an army recruiter and see if I could participate in the Afghan crisis. I felt convinced that I was once again returning to my fleshly impulse instead of heeding the Holy Spirit's leading. He is so desirous to get involved and to do something to help that he's actually convicted by the Holy Spirit saying, oh, I'm jumping ahead of you, Holy Spirit. He knows the Holy Spirit isn't calling him to jump into the Afghan crisis, and yet he wants to. What is I don't know how many of you want to go to Afghanistan right now and involve yourself in a crisis. What we could say is that's a true soldier mentality, though. A true soldier has to be convicted by the Holy Spirit to say, no. <laughs> Don't go to Afghanistan to stand for liberty. I mean, what an odd problem to have. Most of us aren't struggling with this end of the spectrum. Let's just put it that way. Listen to this quote uh, from a Union soldier uh, in the Civil War in 1861. So, outskirts of Baltimore, my dear William, I can now march 20 and 25 miles a day, live on short rations of hardtack, raw rancid bacon, green roasting ears, and cold water sleep out in the rain, having no more than an army coat over me, and enjoy myself capitally. That's when you know you've begun to break through, when you can have what most people would call a miserable life and be loving it. You see, something happens inside what we could call the true soldier. You see, now what we are describing here in this Union soldier from 1861 is he has begun to gain a fondness for difficulty and the fellowship of difficulty. Now, this is just a shadow of what God is desiring to do inside of us in the fellowship of believers, in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, where we actually have a delight and a desire to participate in it. Now, so if when I say that, you're like, oh boy, that, does, that sounds like totally made up. There's no way someone would actually desire to be in that. Start studying missions history. And you begin to realize these men and women that have gone before us had something stirring within them. Delight, eagerness, desire, longing to be spent for Jesus. It's like, huh? You see, that's not what we've been trained in here in North American Christianity. And as a result, it feels like a foreign language. It sounds strange to our ears, strange to our soul. It doesn't match. But should it? I think it should. All you have to do is start reading through the book of Acts and you begin to see the behavior of the newly birthed church. And you see them beaten and then coming out rejoicing. You see them being thrown into prison cells and singing. It's like, what is this? They have such a longing to be sent where no one has ever heard the gospel before. People need to know this. Whatever that is, I would say, let's lean forward and ask God for it. I know it's somewhat of a risk because if you start thinking that way, that means your life is going to start doing some oddball things, isn't it? If you actually longed to share Jesus with people that didn't know it, boy, you could get yourself in trouble real quick. Yeah, but it's the right sort of trouble. The strange behavior of God's missionaries. 
They laugh at challenge and are eager to rise up to meet it. So, by the way, the reason you keep seeing C.T. Studd quotes as I'm going through this is he is the epitome of what I'm describing. This guy, and I don't know if I said this in an earlier session, but his name, uh, Charles Thomas Studd, I think I, I did. It sounds vaguely familiar and, and recent in my, in my memory, but Charles means manly. So this guy's name really actually means manly stud. <laughs> and that's exactly what he is. He was one of the greatest athletes of his day. He is going to forsake it all to go on the mission field. He was one of the wealthiest men of his day. He's going to give up all of his wealth to go on the mission field to interior China, to follow Hudson Taylor. I mean, this is one of the most inspiring lives ever lived is this man. And his quotes are classic. When he speaks, you just chuckle to yourself because he's speaking from over on this side, the second born side of the ledger. And it's different than the way we naturally think. He's talking about danger and he's like, isn't this fun? Listen to this quote. This is just one of those quotes that you have to stick up on your wall somehow, some way. C.T. Studd says, when someone says there is a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, well, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two beside to make it worth my while to go. <laughs> is that all you got is a lion? See, most of us, when we hear there's a lion in the way, we panic and run the opposite direction. He says, is all you have is one lion? Come on. Give me a bear or two beside. I, I want it to be worth my while to go. If it's not a challenge, then I don't discover the grace of God in the process. That's the sort of thinking that we need to begin to reach out for and say, Lord, more like that instead of this cowardly thinking process that we have adopted in our generation. Hudson Taylor's invite to certain death. So Hudson Taylor is going to come back uh, to England and he is going to recruit for interior China, the hardest place on earth probably at the time. And he is going to have seven men, they're called the Cambridge Seven, that are going to basically raise their hand and say, we'll go. And it's inspiring. That's C.T. Studd is one of them, okay? And so these seven men are seven, like, very accomplished, very talented, uh, very strong men. And all of Britain is going to just be like, whoa, these seven are all leaving everything to go? I mean, C.T. Studd being literally possibly the best cricket player in all of Great Britain, which was, would have sort of been like being one of the best NBA players in America or being the best quarterback in the NFL. And he literally is going to heed the call of God and say, I'm leaving it all. You're giving this up for what? To share Jesus with people that have never heard of him before. And then unbeknownst to everyone else, he's one of the wealthiest men in all of England. He is going to secretly give away his fortune. Moody Bible Institute was built with one third of C.T. Studd's fortune that he gave away. No one knew it, though. Everyone thought he was still a wealthy man when he was in interior China. He didn't tell anyone that he gave his funds away, and he said, God will take care of me. He was supernaturally cared for in interior China. He had no support. Because everyone, why, everyone just presumed C.T. Studd is one of the wealthiest guys. Why would I write a check to him? Isn't that incredible? Well, it's a good story, guys. So over there, Hudson Taylor is going to be is going to approach the seven as they're over in China, and he has a difficult task. He recognizes that there is a need somewhere in China, and it is going to likely cost the life of whoever goes, but someone needs to go. So he lays it before the seven. Instantly, all seven raise their hand and say, send me. When I read that, I was convicted <laughs> because I don't know that I would readily, I mean, I may after rolling around in bed at night and waking up in the morning and saying, okay, God, I'm willing. But do you see what I mean? What, what I'm trying to draw to the surface is these are caged lions. They're fretting in their cage and they are waiting for the opportunity. And so when the opportunity comes and the door opens, they're springing out. Their arm goes up in the air. Don't send him, send me. Come on, I, I, I'm more fit for this. Let me give up my life for the Chinese people. What is that? Whatever that is, I want you to reach out spiritually and say, Lord, I want it. All seven hands immediately shot up into the air, 
So this is review. The last session we had, we talked about the Dark Mountain Kingdoms, and then we talked about the Dark Mountain Slaves. So this is Dr. Robert Wick in his description. The interior highlands of Irian Jaya remained isolated and unknown to the outside world until the 20th century. While the rest of the world advanced in the age of the automobile, the airplane, and scientific technology, central Irian Jaya remained in the Stone Age. Enormous malarial swamplands made it all but impossible for even the best-equipped expeditions to penetrate the edges of these dark mountain kingdoms. Again, I'm just setting the context for what we've been describing, which is a specific study, not just of missions in general, but of a missionary movement that is going to transform an island known as Papua New Guinea. It is the darkest place on earth. It is so harrowing, even the, the more you study it and you recognize in the 30s what they had found, it would be reasonable just to say, let it be, okay? And there are people there, maybe, but to, you'd have to risk your life to even get to them. And then if they are as you say they are, they're headhunters, <laughs> they're cannibals, they are controlled by demonic spirits, how about you know, we just call well enough alone and say, you know what, maybe we should, could drop in a care package or something every now and then. But to go in, you risk your life even trying to get to them. And then when you get to them, if you can live one day, you've accomplished a great deal. This is suicide. Well, a lot of people have called missionary work suicide over the years. It's anything but. You see, there's a big difference between suicide and obedience to the Holy Spirit. Suicide is a self-effort. It is something that you do to escape from the pain in your life. What obedience to the calling of God is, is a givenness to God's purposes. It is a selfless act for His glory. So remember this quote that, it was a great quote. Uh, who, who gave this quote? Oh, it's Eric Ludy gave this quote. This is a good, maybe that's why I like this. Interior Irian Jaya in 1938, a place where demons controlled, violence reigned, cannibalism was celebrated, treachery was deemed the highest virtue, women and children were commodities of exchange, revenge was carried on for generations, and the light of gospel truth had never even flickered its hopeful gleam in the understanding of the depraved people living there. This was life on, around, and near these dark mountain kingdoms. Dr. Robert Wick says this, and this is a powerful little summation. In light of this, would Western Christians be so hard-hearted as to leave these people in their continual pain, suffering, and cruel spirit bondage? Surely God had something far better for them. The Christian world had the answer if they would but pay the price of bringing Christ to these people, cringing in the dreadful darkness of satanic enslavement. So on the screen, uh, I have a picture of a man, and the title of this slide is The Man for the Dark Mountains, and his name is Dr. Robert A. Jaffrey. I really like this guy. He is very intriguing uh, to me. So this is a book I would recommend. There's a lot of books that I'll probably recommend as we go through this series, but this is actually written by A.W. Tozier as a biography of this man, the Robert A. Jaffrey, and it's called Let My People Go. And so I have a picture of it up on the screen, but for those that are getting this via podcast, the book is called Let My People Go, The Life of Robert A. Jaffrey by A.W. Tozier. Jaffrey was a fretting lion. He was always looking for the lost to reach. And so as a key leader in the uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance and their mission sending organization. He was over this part of uh, Asia and in the Pacific region. He had been inspired by A.B. Simpson. And so A.B. Simpson had personally transformed R.A. Jaffrey's life. R.A. Jaffrey is going to now personally influence uh, Russell Dibler, who's his right-hand man, sort of like his armor bearer, and many of us have been impacted by Darlene Dibler, the wife of Russell Dibler, if we ever read uh, Evidence Not Seen. It is literally one of the greatest uh, biographies ever written. Of course, I'm going to say that quite a few times because three of the greatest biographies ever written are in this little season of time. They are that good. So Jaffrey was a fretting lion. He was pacing back and forth in his cage right at the time in history when a fretting lion 
was needed most. What was needed in this time of history was a guy just like R.A. Jaffrey, where he's like, let's do this thing. Come on. If they're unreached in the middle of this island, and then they could say back to uh, Dr. Jaffrey, but you do know that we're going to lose lives in trying to get to them. So be it. We must reach them. They are lost in darkness. They've never heard the light of the gospel. They must hear it. And this is what was needed at this time in history was an aggressive lion-like man. And that's exactly what we're going to find in this man. So let's go through the, what we could call the Irian Jaya timeline. So 1936, by, by the way, let me give you some context worldwide. In America, we are in the Great Depression right at this time. And so one of the reasons we really struggled as a nation with World War II, which is going to start in 1939, is because we were sucking our thumb dealing with our own issues. We were in a depression. We didn't have time to deal with European conflict. Meanwhile, in 1933, Adolf Hitler is going to rise to power in Germany. His rise to power is a little sketchy. You have to question if it was marked by complete integrity, right? It's like, did the people really want this guy, or was he uh, you know, messing with some elections? Uh, and so there's a lot of things going on in this time period and in what we are dealing with right now in America that are complete parallels. I mean, complete parallels. And so uh, Hitler is rising to power, and he's beginning to take territory. And no one in Europe wants war. They just went through World War I 20 years ago. That World War I was called the war to end all wars. If you had a war to end all wars, then you really don't want another world war 20 years later. And so as a result, there's all these peace movements that are going on. Peace, peace, peace. And Hitler is taking full advantage of it. He's even telling his counselors, they won't do anything. Watch. And he takes uh, Sudetenland, or he takes... Uh, uh, Czechoslovakia, and they don't do anything. I mean, it's just incredible. And so finally, it's when he takes Poland in 1939 that actually there is going to be a rise and a retaliation, okay? And that's, that's when World War II is officially going to start. So that's the time period we're in right now. 1936, the Whistle Lakes are discovered in Irian Jaya. They're in this mountainous region, they were discovered by Lieutenant Commander F.J. Whistle while making an aerial survey for an oil company. So this discovery is going to trigger some things. It's like, hmm. Because when they're discovering this, they're seeing tribes. They're seeing villages that are there, and they're not really seeing people, but they know there must be life in there. The, in 1937, the Dutch Geographic Society sponsored an expedition into these lakes by Dr. Cater, a fact-fact. That's like his description. Dr. Cater, a fact-fact. Fact-fact is a location, like a city or a town. And his name is Dr. Cater. That's the only name I have for him. His first journey failed, and he almost died. His second campaign succeeded, though he almost died once again on the treacherous journey. So 1937, again, the American Museum of Natural History sponsored an American explorer named Richard Archibald to make this dangerous trek. So this is, he has the highest end equipment known at the time, and he is going to try and make this trek. He does succeed in it, uh, but it is, it's definitely, this is perilous stuff that these guys are doing. And this is even with the best equipment in the world at the time. So a key event is going to happen in 1938. Dr. J.V. De Bruyne became the first government administrator of the interior of Irian Jaya, and this guy's a Christian. So you have this awakening to sort of the explorer expedition type of minded person, sort of like going to the moon. It's the type of person that would say, oh, I want to go to the moon. And so this unexplored uh, region, for people like Dr. Richard Archibald, they're not necessarily interested in bringing the gospel to these tribes. They're interested in exploring and seeing what's out there. No one has ever been here. In their mind, even though there's tribal people there, they would say, no one has ever been here. Because what they mean is no white man has ever been here, right? No one with intelligence has ever been here, right? You can almost feel it in, in the tone. However, the way R.A. Jaffrey is going to approach it is, we need to get Christians in there. This is the opportunity. They need to hear Jesus. So this is where you see R.A. Jaffrey. When this man is appointed, guess who's right at his door saying, I want to talk with you. 
R.A. Jaffrey needs permission from this man to be able to send missionaries into the interior. And this guy is a Christian. And he's thinking, hmm, I like how you think. So sovereignly, providentially, God is bringing this man to be in this position at this exact time. And R.A. Jaffrey, the fretting lion in the cage, the door opens and he jumps out. He says, I would like to talk with you. So Dr. Robert Wick says it this way. When Dr. Jaffrey heard of the discovery of the Whistle Lakes, of Archibald's expedition into the Balium Valley, and of the large number of people living in total isolation in the interior, he spoke to the mission consul about opening up missionary work in New Guinea. In 1938, a formal request was made to begin this work. At the town of Fakfak, remember uh, Fakfak? Uh, at the town of Fakfak, Jaffrey met Dr. Cater and heard the backbreaking and heartbreaking experiences of the men who opened up the first and only trail that has ever been cut into the interior from the coast. When Dr. Jaffrey left Fakfak, he carried with him Dr. Cater's carefully hand-drawn scale map of the trail from the coastal towns of Ouida to the Whistle Lakes. So what does Robert Jaffrey have now in his hand? He has a map of the only trail in. Well, what's he going to do with that? he's going to give it to Russell Dibler. So Russell Dibler is going to be the first missionary to ever make it into, or ever attempt to make it in to the Whistle Lakes. <clears throat> so again, here's the Irian Jaya timeline. So 1938, De Bruyne, who's the government official, who's a Christian, who has the authority to either say yay or nay to a missionary group going in, gives permission to the Christian and Missionary Alliance to take the gospel to the interior people. So I started this entire series by, by showing you A.B. Simpson, and A.B. Simpson being awakened to the need for the unreached to be reached. R.A. Jaffrey is going to be greatly impacted. In fact, probably the most sizable impact in his life is going to be A.B. Simpson. And then Russell Dibler is going to be dramatically impacted by R.A. Jaffrey, to the point that he is going to basically leave his life, give it all up to come on the mission field to serve under this man. And when Russell Dibler hears about this trek in that R.A. Jaffrey is thinking about, R.A. Jaffrey is an older man at this time. He can't make it himself. So Russell Dibler raises his hand. Please, send me in. Now, you could imagine a conversation. It could go something like this. Well, Russell, you do know you were just newly married. <laughs> you do know that this would likely cost you your life. Send me in. My wife knows what she signed up for. <laughs> Send me in. I mean, this is, this is pretty extraordinary. When you try and put it in perspective, a newly married couple, this guy has so much to live for in a natural sense. To, to risk his life to reach Tribal people that don't even want to see him, don't want to hear from him, to even go on this expedition, which is so dangerous, he likely won't even reach them. That doesn't sound very smart to me, right? Which is why we can't reason from the natural man. But for whatever reason, our spiritual man, when we hear it, is sparked. And we like it, and we lean in, and we say, tell me more about Russell Dibler. I want to know what motivates a man like that. So there's our Russell Dibler character. 1938, Reverend Russell Dibler makes the first missionary exploration into the interior. It's funny, when you stick the word reverend in front of a guy, suddenly he doesn't sound very impressive as far as some guy to lead an expedition. You ever had that thought? Every time I've ever read the story, whenever I see the word reverend in front of Russell Dibler, I immediately demote him in his muscularity. You know, he's like, oh, he's a reverend. Oh, well, he obviously, so it's like, take good care of him, uh, you know, on this journey because he's extra fragile. He's a, he's a reverend. <laughs> I stuck it on there just so you guys could share in my thought processes. So he's going to leave. I think it's like December 31st, 1938. So World War II is just about to start. He has left the United States, which is in the midst of a Great Depression. And instead of thinking about self-preservation, which is what the rest of America is doing right now, Pearl Harbor is going to wake us up. That's actually what's going to wake us up from our selfish stupor in World War II. But that happens December 7th, 1941. In the midst of this, you see how a Christian is reasoning. He is literally leaving everything, 
and he's going to a people group that don't even want him, risking his life so he can just reach them. This is how it all begins. This is a thinking of a caged lion. So here's his wife, Darlene Dibler, and then she's going to marry a guy named Gerald Rose after uh, Russell's death, and they're going to return to this very territory to, to reach the same tribe. So it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's a great story. Here's what she says. So Russell has been gone for, I don't remember how long of a, a passage of time. It's been uh, quite a few weeks that he's been on this journey. He has survived, but barely. And now he is coming back, and she's waiting for him in Macassar. And so this is what she says. When the steamer eased into port at Macassar, I was nearly bursting with excitement. Positioned at the front of those gathered to greet disembarking passengers, I was totally dismayed when I saw a giant, wasted stranger. Where was the man I had married, the husband who had left for New Guinea? In just 18 months, in 18 days, sorry, 18 months and 18 days, very different. On the trail and a few months of meager rations, he had lost more than 60 pounds. Uh, that's a lot of weight. When you're someone my size, 60 pounds, I mean, I don't even know, do I have 60 pounds to lose? I mean, you have to give up a few bones in the process. <laughs> he walked with considerable pain, and once back at the house, when he removed his shoes and socks, I knew why. There was no skin on his insteps, the balls of his feet, or any of his toes. He had a serious case of jungle rot. Although hurting at the pain Russell was experiencing when I dressed his feet, listen to this, I thrilled to think my Lord was looking at them, or at, at these feet, saying, to me they are beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. She is thrilled to think that the Lord is looking upon these feet as beautiful. To me, they are beautiful feet. It served to increase my desire to join him when he returned to Whistle Lakes. Uh, okay, Darlene, let's get something straight. You see what the journey to Whistle Lakes just did to Russell. And what does she say? It served to increase. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop right there. Seeing his jungle rot... His feet that are so messed up, his loss of 60 pounds has somehow served <laughs> to increase her desire to join him when he returned. He's already talking about returning. And she is anticipating the return. She wants to go. I cannot think of anything in this whole story that would cause anyone to want to return, let alone to have his wife say, oh, I can't wait. Cuckoo. <laughs> These are fretting lions. There is something different about them than us. They're living over here in their thinking. They see jungle rot. One of the most painful things that you could ever have is all the skin removed from your feet and you have to walk. He had to hike with no skin on his feet for days. I mean, this is so excruciating, you can hardly even imagine, and he wants to return. These people need to know Jesus. And his wife, bandaging those feet daily, is anticipating. And the feet are reminding her of how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Here's what she says, Darlene Dibler. I was impatient. <laughs> Most of us are like, you know, God, take your time. Take your time on calling me. Uh, you know, I'm fine right now, and we can, you know, I can just sort of live in my comfort here for just a little longer. You know, and when you get all things organized, then okay, we can talk. She is impatient. Dr. Jaffrey had shared his vision for the day when it would be over. In other words, what we're going to discuss as we move forward is the mentality behind the missionaries, which is to reach every creature. And when every creature is reached, then the Lord comes. And this mentality is permeating this time period of history of the church. And so what you see is this statement. Dr. Jaffrey had shared his vision for the day when it would be over. Darlene, if we could reach these, and we could reach all the unreached, then Jesus comes. And so you see this desire 
for these missionaries to move and be mobilized, not just to share the love of Jesus with them, but to see Jesus return. I just wanted it, oh, Dr. Jaffrey had shared his vision for the day when it would be over. I just wanted it to start. When, Lord, when? What is she asking? When can I go? When can I go? I don't want to just sit here bandaging feet. I want to have my feet get some jungle rot for the glory of God. I want to have beautiful feet too. You guys see anything odd about this thought process? Something that's a little foreign to the way we think. Are we like fretting lions? Uh, I think I could almost start with the premise that probably not. But are we interested in becoming them? I want to be like A.B. Simpson. I want to be like R.A. Jaffrey. I want to be like Russell Dibler. I want to be like Darlene Dibler. Lord, whatever this is, I need this. For whatever reason, the church system that I've grown up in isn't fostering it. Is there another way to inherit this? Remember we talk about God being a father to the fatherless? There's something that when you don't have it imparted to you from your parentage, you might as well, we might as well not get mad at our parents for not teaching us this. They weren't taught it either. However, where we are lacking in that parent training, he's a father to the fatherless. And so if we're needing something to be taught us, I think right now he's leaning in and very desirous to instruct us in this, to say, do you want to have this? Now, part of us is like, I'm not sure. But there's another part of us that is like wanting to say yes even before we think it through any further. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I want that. The yearning. Understanding the seemingly strange craving that Christians have for sharing the gospel where it has never been shared. So we could go back. I'm just going to give you a couple stories. Jim Elliott, and I'm just saying Jim Elliott and his buds. Okay, if you've ever heard the story of their journey to the Akas, wow. First of all, their enthusiasm is so odd that when they discover the Aka tribe, which is the most dangerous tribe, of course, that's the reason they want to go after it. When they discover it and they gain some kind of communication between them, it is the greatest exhilaration their souls have ever experienced. And even on the day when they are going to die martyrs, the enthusiasm, the drive, the energy, they are lions bounding from cages. It's like you can't even feel sorry for them when they die. And then get this, their wives go in to the same tribe that just killed their husbands and love them. What is that? That's like Darlene Dibler wrapping jungle rot and saying, oh Lord, send me next. This is strange to our mentality, but very much needed. C.T. Studd on his deathbed. So C.T. Studd at the age of, I want to say 54, he has served in interior China. He has served in interior India. Wherever the lost were, wherever the unreached were, he, he's like, God, send me there. And now he is, his body, because of the diseases he has been exposed to in interior China and interior India, his body has been just depleted. And so he's back in England, basically ready to die. And he's laying on his deathbed. That's just what, what I'm calling it. David Livingston, the great explorer to Africa, returns and makes mention that in interior Africa, in the Congo region, there are limitless numbers of tribes, and these tribes have never heard the gospel of Jesus. C.T. Studd hears this. It's just too much for him. He can't die now. He can't die now. And so on his deathbed, he raises his hand to heaven and says, Lord, don't send a young buck. Please, send me. You know that the Congo at this time, for someone of white skin from Great Britain to make their way down there, they could last maybe a couple weeks. Physically, their immune system could not handle what they were going to be exposed to. 
And so it was, as most people would have said back then, a suicide mission. In other words, to go and do that, that's, that's ludicrous. Of course, people were doing it to go find gold. Gold had been discovered in the Congo, and people were risking their life to get gold. And that, of course, made more sense to people. But to share the gospel? C.T. Studd, already dying, says, send me. So he has to pass a, pass a physical to be sent by the missionary society, and he can't pass it. So like, we can't send you. I know you mean well, but we can't send you. So you know what C.T. Studd declares? He has a missionary sending organization of one. His name is God Almighty. God is sending him. So he travels to the Congo and spends 20 years there turning modern missions on its head and reaching the people of interior Africa. You know why he survived? He'd already experienced all the diseases. He was the man on earth that was fit to go into that place and bring the gospel. Isn't that extraordinary? That's a fretting lion. Most of us, if we were lying on our deathbed, would not choose to have greater difficulties added to our already challenged life, unless we think like C.T. Studd. So C.T. Studd in his deathbed, yearning, longing, pining to go to the most dangerous place on earth to reach a people that had never heard the light of the gospel. So now we're going to go to the story of Don and Carol Richardson, which Don and Carol Richardson's book, Peace Child, is one of the most stirring, of course, I, I could say one of the greatest biographies I have ever read. Yes, I'm going to say that at least three times during this because there's three biographies, Evidence Not Seen, Peace Child, and Lords of the Earth that are three of the most moving pictures of missions work that I have, I've ever heard. They're all in the same area. And uh, so this is the missionary pitch. They have just arrived. They've been training for years to arrive here. And so they're in Papua New Guinea, and they're greeted uh, by the missionary sending organization and their home base there. And this is the conversation that ensues. <clears throat> so David Martin, the leader there, is going to say, David and Carol, the area of southwestern New Guinea is anything but hospitable. Many of the tribes in that region are still practicing both cannibalism and headhunting and are generally not to be trusted. And the climate is as hot, humid, and unhealthy as, as, as it possibly can be. We realize that you may have apprehensions of taking little Stephen, who is a newborn, down to a place like that. And if you would rather work somewhere else, feel free to, feel free to say so. I, I'm not exactly sure how you're responding to this, if, especially if you're a man and you have a, uh, a young bride and you have a newborn child. And you've already arrived in a dangerous place. Anywhere you go is dangerous. But this just happens to be the most dangerous and the most miserable. When you get that type of humidity, you also get some big bugs. Okay, this is like a very <laughs> inhospitable place. Okay, now remember, it's not just the climate. It's not just the difficulty of the landscape. It's the difficulty of the people there that want you dead. In fact, they don't just want you dead, they want to eat you. Okay, that amps up everything to a whole nother level. You don't just serve up a little baby to them. Okay, this is not good. This is not the type of thing. And so for many of us, we immediately hear that and we're like, oh, you have somewhere else? Could you share the other options? What other options do you have? This couple does not respond that way. Listen to their response. I'm gonna call this the fretting lion's response. Don Richardson says, we gave David Martin our answer. Yes, we are happy to go to one of the tribes in the south. How soon can we leave? What? No, 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 Don. Let's think this through. Young bride, little Stephen. I mean, if you were single, eh, maybe. We still would want to counsel you different. But everything about this doesn't make sense. Or does it? You see, this couple is going to transform the Sawi people. Their obedience is going to precipitate a revival in the southwestern portion of New Guinea. We need fretting lions. The devil's bluff. So now Don Richardson is there. He has seen the difficulties in front of him. 
And this is the devil's territory, by the way. The darkness is thick and dense. Demons are not hidden in this part of the world. You know, like in America, demons sort of hide. They don't want to make too big of a noise. They just want to control people. But in this part of the world, they stand on, well, not the street corner, but, you know, the, the forest corner, and they declare their presence, and they intimidate. And all of the people believe in the dark spirits. They, they know. In fact, if they violate the dark spirits, bad things happen. I mean, that's when your crops die. That's when, you know, landslides will happen. Bad things happen if you don't placate the dark spirits. They all know the dark spirits. So he is coming into a territory that is literally holding him in contempt, open contempt, and he feels it. So he's doing the scouting mission to figure out where he's going to build this house, how he's going to do this, and we'll pick up right there. We'll call it the devil's bluff. Don Richardson says, The brooding jungle stood tall against the sky, walling in the overgrown clearing as if to create an arena for a pending contest. The wildness of the locale seemed to taunt me. Something in the mood of the place seemed to say mockingly, I am not like your tame, manageable Canadian homeland. I am tangled. I am too dense to walk through. I am hot and steamy and drenched with rain. I am hip-deep mud and six-inch sago thorns. I am death adders and taipans and leeches and crocodiles. I am malaria and dysentery and fluoriasis and hepatitis. Your idealism means nothing here. Your Christian gospel has never scrupled the conscience of my children. You think you love them, but wait until you know them, if you ever can know them. You presume you are ready to grapple with me, understand my mysteries, and change my nature, but I am easily able to overpower you with my gloom, my remoteness, my heedless brutality, my indolence, my unashamed morbidity, my total otherness. Think again before you commit yourself to certain disillusionment. Can't you see I am no place for your wife? I am no place for your son. I am no place for you. Now, okay, what are you going to do right now? Some of us are just like, all right, you're right. <laughs> I don't belong here. Should have thought this one through a little better. How does Don Richardson handle it? This is just a good moment in history right here. The textbook response to the devil's bluff. This is Don Richardson. It's only a bluff, I thought. This swamp also is part of my father's creation. His providence can sustain us here as well as anywhere else. Then the peace of God descended on me, and suddenly this strange place became home. My home. I turned to Ken and John and said, this is where I want to build. The very place that the devil's bluff came, he says, let's build right here. I like it. You know, it was a common thing in this era is to take the witch doctor's house, the missionary comes in, and once the village is, is taken, take the witch doctor's land, their territory, and turn it into the center, like the church, or the, the place where you call home as the missionary, to literally stake claim to say where the evil spread, now truth is going to be planted. We are defying what the enemy is attempting to say here. The seed of the church when they sacrifice their lives willingly. Now, some of you have heard the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the eager lions that are willing to spend themselves is how the church has grown all throughout the ages. And so I want us to remember that, and I want this historic understanding to be cultivated and tilled into our soul. John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Sometimes that is literal death. There's a bloodline in Africa that separates the northern portion of Islamic uh, Africa and the southern portion of Christian. And that line is called the bloodline by missionaries for generations because that's where the martyr's blood was shed and Islam spread no further. I mean, pretty amazing things that have happened because Christians were willing to stand up and represent Jesus. When we are willing to fall into the ground and die, like Russell Dibler, when he was willing to do that, he's fallen into the ground and dying. 
He's dying to his own agenda. He's dying to his own rights as a man, his young marriage, his future family for Jesus. And as a result, he is going to bring forth much fruit. And this is just the principle. Mark 8, 35, whosoever, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. What are we doing over here in the first condition? We're trying to save our life. What, what is Russell Dibler doing? He's given up his life. Who's going to get life? You try and hold on to your life and you lose it. When you give up your life, you find it. Principle of scripture, I'm not making it up. This is how it works in the kingdom of heaven. Acts 21, 13. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? This is Paul talking. Everyone around him is like, don't go into Jerusalem. Don't, you'll, be, you'll suffer. He says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? There's a frightening lion right here. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Stop crying for me. This is my privilege. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Remember Paul's thorn? Right before this, Paul is going to make an extraordinary statement. It's actually the quote from God to his own soul. My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul's reasonable conclusion as he's thinking this through that when he's weak, God's strength is made manifest in his life. So when he enters this territory and spends himself, God's grace comes in at a greater measure. Huh. And he's seen this. And so his conclusion, listen to this. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When my feet have jungle rot, then I know the grace of God at a greater level. What is this when the devil bluffs me in the dark you know, corners of Irian Jaya? I have grace. The peace of God is going to flood Don Richardson in that moment, in the midst of that darkness. Paul says, I take pleasure. This is how it works, guys. This is the greatest pleasure. This is what we're built for right here. Don't miss it. The privilege of the martyr, the pleasure of the martyr, the power of the martyr. Those that lay down their lives. You know, some of us could take martyr to the extreme and say it has to be someone who actually lays down their physical life and dies, breathes their last, sure. But there is a willingness to die, where you may not die physically, but that same movement has a privilege, and it has a pleasure, and it has a power. It's up to God if you lose your life. That's not up to you. But it is up to you to let go of your life and to give it to him. And that is the spirit of the martyr. The martyr is willing to be used by God however he deems fit. If that means to spend his physical life, fine. If that means to get jungle rot on his feet, fine. But we get grace for that task. So here's our Stanley Dale motto, our missionary motto of Stanley Dale. I've repeated it in every one of our sessions so far. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And we have Stanley Dale prayers you guys might want to start implementing uh, each day. These are good. So from the first session, the legend maker, it's Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. From the second message, which was passing on the Kasu Marzu, Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. The third message, inured for danger, Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. And then in this message, fretting like a lion, Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. Father, may we be preoccupied with what preoccupies you. May we be like fretting lions. Whatever is necessary to do inside of us to transform us from comfort-focused to Christ-focused, we ask that you would do it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.